Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks where we are strolling across the great battlefields of Europe. Joining me from France, as always, is my very dear friend and co-host, it's Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back to another episode. Thank you, Matt. Good to be back again. Mate, I've got to say, we've talked about this for a long time, but it seems the light is finally at the end of the tunnel. We, we perhaps have reached the end of the COVID tunnel because things are starting to happen. And let me say to all listeners out there... You can tour now. You can visit the battlefield. So the time is perfect now to book a tour for 2022 because the battlefields are opening up again. And obviously by the time Anzac Day comes around and the European summer, uh, we're fairly confident that the whole COVID thing will be behind us. So Pete, you must be loving being out there and guiding tours again for the first time in a long time. Yep, last year, uh, last week, not last year, last week I had uh, had a tour, so that was that was great to get out uh, on the battlefields again, following in this case on the footsteps of a relative, so that was great. Uh, there's certainly more cars about, I was out uh, uh, today having a walk on the battlefields with the uh, uh, Masson pals, so yeah, we're seeing more people around, so it's, it's changing kind of almost day by day, I heard a, a story um, today, even while we're walking, that uh, masks are probably going to be dropped soon in uh, in France. So not going to be compulsory inside shops and supermarkets and things. Um, so uh, it's going to be down to you whether you wear one or not. And I think that's good. It's giving people more more options. Uh, and it shows that the government is uh, is getting more relaxed about the whole thing. So, yeah, onwards and upwards, as they say. As always, it's it's down to the individual to decide whether they uh, whether it's right for them to, to travel yep. at the moment. But what we're talking about here is, I mean, it's still the dead of winter there over there in France. This is a time when we don't normally expect people to be to be visiting the battlefields anyway. And so, I'd just say to anyone listening, if you're thinking of 
wanting to visit the battlefields, 2022 will be a great year for it because it's quieter than it has been at other times. And people visiting Europe are reporting how quiet it is because there's not the, 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 the crush of tourists yet. So um, visit our website at battlefields.com.au and just have a look. There's some great tours coming up, including, Pete, one that we're both very excited about, the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour in September this year, which will be you and I walking across the battlefields, basically doing this podcast in real time on the ground. I can't wait, mate. It's going to be fantastic. No, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, we're going to some fairly special places as well and locations that we don't normally go to, so it'll be nice to, to do that. So, yeah, looking looking forward to that. I can't quite imagine what it will be like to get back on the battlefields for the first... It'll be it'll have been well over two years for me since I've walked that ground. I'm jealous of the fact you get to do it every day, mate, but um, it's going to be great to be back there with you walking the ground. So if you want to join us, there are still some places left on that tour, the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour visit the website and, and join Pete and I on the battlefields. It's going to be a very, very special event. And speaking of special events, we're doing one today, Pete. We're doing a good walk, which will actually on the signature tour, this will be part of what we do. We're, we're focusing today on the town of Messine in the Eep Salient. Now, this is a, a place that I really enjoy visiting, uh, one of the first places I visited on the battlefield. And it's just, there's just something about it, isn't there, Pete? It's, just a, it's, a special, it's a special story and it's a special destination. Well, I'm going to try and not tell the story so much of what went on there. We'll be, we'll be touching upon it, but it's more about what there is to see and do when you're actually in the town itself. And I think what's extraordinary about it is, it's, um, again, it's a surprise because we get that image that I've mentioned lots of times in, in, in the podcast. That image we get, black and white, flat landscape, waterlogged. Well, this is a ridge, and it's a proper ridge. This isn't, we get ridges that are just like ripples in the ground. This is a proper ridge. You get good views from the top of it. So it's unusual, especially in the area that we associate with a landscape being very flat, that Flanders landscape, because this is very firmly in Flanders, but it's it's one of those ridges. So the Messine Ridge, yeah, we get views. So it's uh, it's different, it's historic, it's been uh, rebuilt. I have to say, from you know, 20 years ago when I was started to come on a regular basis, uh, it's changed an awful lot, and that's what I wanted to talk about, was some of the changes that have taken place within this, this small town itself in 20 years that makes it a great location to have a good wander uh, around the battlefields. It's fascinating, Pete. It's always very interesting to Australians and I'm sure visitors from the UK when they come over, but the distinction between the way the French remember the, the, the First World War and the way the Belgians do, and, and the town of Messine is very much in Belgium, um, and they do a great job up there, don't they? It's south of the major town of Ypres, the, the centre of battlefield tourism in the area and the home to the Menin Gate and all these wonderful memorials. But the Belgians do a great job, don't they? It's not to take anything away from the French. The French do a great job as well, but it's quite different from the way the Belgians choose to remember. And I think Messine is a great example of just a, a local community wanting that connection with the war not to disappear. There's also a bit more to it than that as well, because when you're on in Messine itself and looking out, you're looking out from um, you're, you're in Flanders, but we're in a Flemish area, so a Flemish language area as opposed to a Walloon area. Belgium split into these uh, two uh, two almost two nations, two peoples anyway, French speaking uh, Walloons and Flemish-speaking Flems. And, and it's right on the cusp, literally down at the bottom of the hill, you're going into a, a Walloon area, so the language, effectively, it's not quite like this, but the language would change to French. Um, and then also, we can look right the way across, we can actually see into France from the top of the, the ridge as well. So it's a, it's a fascinating place to be. Uh, and what Matt said is, is absolutely right. The 
there's more money, I think, put into the tourism uh, uh, in certainly in the Flemish regions. But because we're on the cusp of the of the Walloon regions, just below the ridge, they're kind of vying with each other all the time. So they're putting money into, uh, I suppose, developing the battlefields isn't a good time. Just making making it easier for the uh, uh, for the tourist, for the pilgrim, uh, for us to to explore. So there's this constant development, and so it does change. It doesn't stand still. You see new things every time you go. You think, oh, that wasn't there last time. And certainly, we've been away for for quite some time. I'm looking forward to going back onto that ridge. And seeing what has changed um, and in fact I had to use Google Earth just to make sure there was nothing obviously that there's a change recently because you know when you when you walk in the ground you need to know that you're walking to where you think you're walking to so it's uh, yeah it's uh, it's it's a great place to go because because it doesn't stand still well tell us a little bit about the town Pete how many people live there uh, describe it a little bit for us in our in, in, your, in our mind's eye Okay, so a thousand people living there or thereabouts uh, now. So it's a it's a it's a small town. I mean, some people say it's a village, but it's it's not. It's a town. So it's a uh, you know it's it's got shops, it's got bars, more than one. It's got a church. It's got all the things that you'd associate uh, with a with a town. The one thing that that we really need to get to grips with straight away: this place was not just flattened; it was blown away. There was nothing left here at all. So, and it was bigger. It had been bigger before the the First World War than it is now. Many, many more people than a thousand people living there before the First World War. But it uh, utterly, utterly obliterated. And it's one of the things that I really wanted to chat about uh, during this this podcast: is the point of view of the, of the people coming back in the nineteen twenties. No, I just, I just can't imagine it. You know, you survived the war. You were perhaps saved in the Belgian army. Uh, you, you go back home at the end of the war to your town, and there is nothing there. There is just literally nothing there. Well, what do you do? No, nobody's going to help you to start off with. You know, there was no help for a lot of these returning villagers, and a lot of them must have taken one look at their village and thought, "Oh my God, I'm not coming back here." Because apart from the fact that nothing was there, of course, there is a lot of things there and they're not safe. Lots of munitions everywhere, concrete blockhouses as well. No, I, need to, I just can't imagine coming back to this place. And that's part of the story of Messine, I suppose. I should say Messen now, if we're going to be strictly correct. The Flemish-speaking uh, the F- Flemish speaking people, it's a Flemish region, and it's called Messen now as opposed to Messines, but everybody still calls it Messines. That's the French uh, version of the uh, of the town itself. So so completely flattened, nothing there at all. You return and, uh, and you're expected to live in it. And a lot of people said, no, there's no way I'm coming back here, mate. No, I'm, I'm off. Uh, I'm going somewhere else. Uh, and that's what happened. It was one of those towns that, that by 1922-1923, as the redevelopment, the rebuilding is taking place in places like Ypres and on the, on the Somme in Albert and all of those places that we associate with the First World War, well, you could have driven back to Messina and there's still nothing going on at all because it just filled people with such horror that they had to try and renovate these places that it's one of the, the, the really slow places for people to come back and start re- rebuilding it. When you build the uh, when you build when you read the books that we've mentioned before the um, the great Michelin guides to the battlefields that were published immediately after the First World War for for the very earliest pilgrims to go back I recall reading the one of this region that the road from Ypres down to Messines and through White Sheet and that area was one of the worst on the battlefields and that it was impassable to cars years after the fighting had stopped. The, the, the destruction was so complete in that area. And it's, it's always fascinating for me, Pete, when you think about... We've talked about it a lot. We've talked about the pilgrims coming from the UK to visit the graves of lost sons. We talk about the people returning. This, this, this immediate post-war era, 
and it's just a fascinating time. And we have touched on this before, more so in France, but the idea that the young men of the village would go off and fight probably hundreds of kilometres away from where, they, uh, from, from where they lived and go off and fight and, as you say, survive the war, but then come home and find that the town that they had grown up in had also been completely destroyed by the war. Because, of course, for the French and for the Belgians, the, often the areas that they were fighting in were not the areas uh, around their hometown. So it just, it must have been just overwhelming, oh, the thought uh, that, uh, that I completely. had to go off to the front and do my best to survive in the horror of the war. And then uh, I don't even get to come home to my hometown like I would have if I'd lived in Paris or in yeah. Provence or some other part of Brittany or some other part of, of France, any other part of France, then to yep. come home and find that the British and the Germans had effectively destroyed your town while you were, while you were away. Just, yep. just heartbreaking. And there must have been the worry for the Belgians as well, since most of the, uh, of the Belgian uh, countryside was under German control. So only a tiny f- fragment of Belgium w- was not under German control. So those Belgian soldiers that had uh, not surrendered and uh, had continued fighting and had slowly been forced out of Belgium almost, they had that extra worry for the whole time that they were fighting that what was happening to their loved ones because they were you know, behind the German lines. So what was happening to them? So again, another worry for those men in the front lines still fighting, knowing that their loved ones were behind the German uh, German lines. I was just looking at something because I just quickly, I've got some notes in front of me. I just wanted to check. L. Haig, so Haig, uh, after the war, came to unveil a memorial in 1923 to Messine, and that was to the, the London Scottish. I'm going to talk about it a little later. It's, in fact, our last stopping point during the walk. But you think that, you know, L. Haig uh, and King Albert of the Belgians, uh, he, he, he came as well for the unveiling of this memorial. And amazing, isn't it? So the building memorials, 1923, and most of the village must have still been fairly flattened by then. You know, there's still only very early stages of rebuilding because it was so slow here. So I just found that interesting. You know, the great and good are coming to the... I wonder what they thought. They're coming to the, the town to unveil a memorial on the outskirts of the town, but the town at that point would be you know, nothing structurally other than wooden huts uh, and not even many of those at, at that point. So that's an interesting, an interesting thought uh, as well. So it's just a fascinating time. And uh, one of the things I like about Messine and Ypres and this area is all of these facets of the story are often told quite well. The, the people returning to the town, the, yeah. you know, the local people, the, the refugees that had to flee in front of the Germans. So it's a fascinating place. Um, one thing, just before we begin the walk, Pete, I noticed as well in your notes is that um, Messine is twinned with Featherston in New Zealand, um, which is a town that was famous during the First World War as the main training camp for New Zealand soldiers. So just about every New Zealand soldier who fought on the Western Front went through Featherston, the training camp there. Um, but just before we started recording, Pete, I was telling you a little bit of a connection with Featherston that neither of us really realised, is that Featherston, no, fascinating. Featherston featured more prominently in the Second World War for a rather bizarre reason. And, and I've just, I've just, most of you would know I've just finished writing a book about the Kaura breakout, this break, big breakout of Japanese prisoners from an Australian prison camp in the Second World War. Well, there was actually a forerunner of that at Featherston. Featherston, the camp that had formerly been a World War One training camp, became a prisoner of war camp during the Second World War. And the Japanese rioted there in early 1943, and about 50 Japanese prisoners were killed, and a New Zealand guard was killed as well during a big riot. Um, and it became effectively the precursor to the Cowra breakout that occurred a year later in Cowra, in New South Wales. So a lot of lessons should have been learnt from that, that riot at Featherston of the Japanese prisoners in 1943. And sadly, they weren't. And because those lessons weren't learnt, um, the Kara breakout occurred, which was on a scale that, that absolutely dwarfed Featherston. A thousand Japanese broke out and 234 were killed. 
and five Australians. So you know, it's just it's again the little the little threads of history are just always intertwining. And here we are talking about a Belgian town, and there's that link to Featherstone in in New Zealand, which is remembered both for the training camp in World War One and the Japanese prison camp in World War Two. I think there's a podcast here, um, the twinning of towns, uh, because uh, most uh, Belgian and uh, French towns and uh, and villages in the areas of of the devastation, uh, they went through a twinning process that took place in the early 1920s, with a viewpoint that the the towns they were twinned with was would help in their rebuilding process. I'm not going to say anything else because I can feel a podcast coming up about this, but it's it's a very interesting subject. This twinning, this attempt by by uh, uh, towns from all over the empire, really, or the uh, uh, the Commonwealth, um, supporting these little French and Belgian towns in the rebuilding process. Now, sadly, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, hang on, I'm in I'm in danger of telling the story, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I'll let's, stop let's talking. say that. I, I think that's a great idea. We'll say that for a future podcast. The, 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 uh, yeah. There's a couple of very famous Australian ones as well. Probably most notably, yeah. um, Robinvale in Victoria, twinned with Villers Bretonneux. So, yes, let's absolutely do that, Pete. Let's yeah. do a podcast on the twinning. Um, yeah. Back to Messine. Let's let's do a walk. Okay. Okay, so where we're going to park the car, or the coach, we're going to park in in front of uh, the Island of Ireland Peace Park. Now, nobody knows it as that. We all know it as the Irish Peace Tower. So we're going to this is where we're going to park, and this is where we're going to start the tour. It's just outside of, of Messine. I think, in fact, I think the the sign that says "Kind of Welcome to Messine" is just is just there. But a great place to park, and a really good place to have a look at the battlefield. Now, as I said, we're not going to talk too much about the battlefield below us and what went on, but it's just the view. You can park here, walk into into the uh, the peace. Uh, the, the Peace uh, Park. I'm going to explain what that's all about in a second. And you get a fantastic view uh, down onto the battlefield. And, and specifically, if you're interested in the Australian aspect of the Battle of Messines. So let's just talk about the Battle of Messines. Um, the Battle of Messines that we're, that we're going to be really kind of touching upon, and a lot of the memorials and things that we'll, that we'll see, is from the 7th to the 14th of June in 1917. And that is when people say the Battle of Messines, then that is when they're really talking about it. It's, it's that period. It's the precursor to Third Eep, so the fighting in the salient, which will eventually take us to Passchendaele and the, and the fighting at Passchendaele. So this is all happening just before that in, in, in 1917. So the view that we get from the, uh, the, the Irish Peace Tower is looking down on the, where the Australian effort, the Australian Third Division, uh, attacking on the extreme south, I suppose, of this, uh, of this, this battlefield, this Messine Ridge, which we're going to talk about as well in a second what actually that represents so let's just before we go any further let's talk about the irish peace tower what on earth is is this all about well it's fairly spectacular it's like a, a pinnacle a spire um known as a, an irish ram tower historically created uh, in ireland in the 8th century obviously this wasn't wasn't created in ireland this was built here specifically but it's been been built to represent one of those uh, irish ram towers from the 8th century um, I think there were monks pre- predominantly that lived inside them. Very clever, really, in a way. They're just a, a pinnacle, a, a very uh, slim spire almost. Uh, and the doorway is about, uh, I suppose, about 12 foot up, perhaps even a little higher. And so you needed a ladder to get into it. So obviously the, the owner of it, the person that was living there, climbed up his ladder, opened his door, went into his house, effectively lifted the ladder up and shut the door and said, nay, 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 nay. Um, you can't get me now because you can't even get to the door. Uh, and then presumably they drop rocks and things out of windows above to keep them away from the door. Anyway, that's uh, that's a, bit, a, a very a very brief brief on a on a, an Irish round tower. 
So I really like is, that. I, I love yeah. your potted history. <laughs> that one was particularly good. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, so why is it? Uh, why is it here? Well, it's 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 very interesting. It was built um, in an attempt in in modern times to reconcile the two halves of uh, of Ireland and the and the troubles that are taking place in in Northern Ireland uh, between the the North and the South, the Catholics and the Protestants. And there's a very good reason, because not far from here, further along the ridge, it's slightly not in the right place, really, but it doesn't matter because it, it, it's, it's relevant. Um, a little bit further away, the two divisions that were fighting on the Western Front at the same time, the 16th Irish Division, predominantly Catholic and from the South, and the 36th uh, Division, predominantly uh, Protestant and from the North, fought side by side here. Now, that had not been the case during the Battle of the Somme uh, the previous year. They had kept them at different parts of the battlefield, I think for fairly obvious reasons. Um, but here, they end up fighting side by side, and it worked very well. They, they fought together very well. There was cooperation. And so this location is seen as a, a place where it can be talked about. The problems, the troubles in Northern Ireland can be talked about. And it was felt that this, and it, and it takes place in 1998, we are, would be a great place to build something to commemorate that, that uh, working together. And so that's what hap- happened. 11th of November 1988, uh, 1998, sorry, uh, the President of Ireland, Mary McAleese, uh, and the Queen and King Albert, um, uh, the Queen, should I say, as in the Queen of, uh, of Great Britain, and uh, King Albert II of the Belgians, all arrived here for the uh, inauguration, so we can see how important it was seen. You now these are the, the, the top people of uh, of Ireland, of of Britain, and of Belgium uh, here, the, the heads of state, uh, and um, they, that's when it was inaugurated. It's a great, uh, an interesting building to go and look at. You can go inside it, and uh, you can look right up to the top. And in writing this, I only just, in scribbling the notes for this, I only just realised that the sun on the 11th uh, uh, of November at 11 o'clock, uh, the, the the rising sun shines inside it and lights up the inside of the tower, which I hadn't realised, uh, not having been there at that uh, at that period. Um, and so that, that's a, a, a nice little touch. Um, it's got a, a fairly big uh, extensive grounds around it with these, uh, what I describe as pillars, these stone pillars that uh, actually um, uh, tell you little stories. Uh, there's uh, some from uh, little stories of the great poets of, of Ireland from both the north and the, and the south and the, the, uh, uh, also the religious divide. So uh, that's nice to look at. Uh, there's all sorts. I won't go into everything. There's all sorts of interesting things to look at on, on the site itself. And so it's a great, a great place to visit and to, to chat about, uh, about, about. Very often I have people from Australia, from New Zealand, from Canada, from Britain and from Ireland, who have relatives on on both sides, from the north and the south, and uh, it's nice to just chat about it and explain a little bit about what what's going on and the um, the reconciliation that's been taking place in 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 recent years. Yeah, it's Inside an interesting the, one. Sorry, Matt. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's an interesting one, and it uh, you know it's not without controversy. You know, the people no, from no, Ireland, not indeed. Yeah, it's it's been argued over long and hard whether it is appropriate or not, and every side it's yeah. you know like much to do with. Irish yep. reconciliation. There's uh, there's there's fiery opinions on both sides, but it is a no- it's a very nice symbol. It's symbolic of what at least we want to happen, even if <laughs> it's, it's taking yeah. some time. And um, as you say, incredible views across the battlefield. I go there every time I take people to Messine simply because it gives you such a great. It's got the best spot on the battlefield to get a view of particularly where the Australians were fighting. And um, you know, there's a little bunker in the foreground, a German bunker that was captured by yeah, the Indians, and yep. views all the way down, almost all the way down to the French border. So it's a it's a it's a really good spot to get a good view of the Messine battlefield. 
It is, and of course, the Irish effort is uh, is enormous. You know, Irish traditionally uh, joined the joined the military and have done for centuries. Um, and you know, the estimates that there are over three hundred thousand uh, uh, Irish serving in the armies. I can't say the British Army, but serving you know, all over the Commonwealth. Um, in all of the Commonwealth forces uh, or Empire's forces that are that are fighting uh, during the Great War, so I think it's probably going to be over three hundred thousand because you come across a lot of people that have Irish names and 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 certainly are of Irish descent, and yet will have perhaps one or two generations uh, away from from Ireland. So are they still Irish or not? No, well, uh, probably not. Uh, not in that. The three hundred thousand list, so it's, I think it's probably more people that would see themselves as traditionally Irish. So, yeah, an enormous, enormous effort. Now, the great bit of of this site, and I only discovered this uh, a few months ago when I had an opportunity to to pop back and do a quick recce on the battlefield to make sure that uh, t- not too many things had changed. And one of the things I discovered is that from the back of this, you can now uh, connect to our our next visit, which is the New Zealand Memorial and the preserved pillboxes there. And so before you had to go back onto the road and you would actually drive up and hang a left and uh, and drive down and and go to the memorial. Well, now you don't have to. You can you can leave your car there. And that's what we're going to do, because we're going to make this into a fairly, uh, fairly uh, not it's not a long walk, but an interesting wiggling walk through the, the town and the outskirts of the town. We can now walk into the countryside just below the high point of the ridge, past the football ground, over a little pond as well. It's a little bridge. Um, so it's very beautiful and easy walking and perhaps not so easy if you're uh, if you're uh, in a wheelchair. Uh, very often we look at things and nowadays it's uh, you know, we, we, we need to kind of think about these things. And I'm not sure that you can actually do it in a wheelchair. So you'd need to check. But uh, other than that, it's um, it's a great a great walk that takes us straight now into the New Zealand uh, Memorial at the bottom of the park. They've opened a special gate which brings us in uh, alongside the, the blockhouses there. That is good, Pete. That's, a, that's something I didn't know either because that is some pretty important ground as well. There's a lot of photos. <coughs> there's a lot of photos taken by of the Australians preparing for the battle across that ground. That was where the New Zealanders charged. So that's great. You can actually walk the ground. It's, I mean, it's always been there. It's always been farmland. Um, but it's great that there's, yeah. a, there's a, 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 a designated walking area now because that, the, the walk up to that New Zealand memorial is, is pretty special. Oh, I, I find it absolutely, absolutely fascinating, and uh, and why it's even more fascinating to me, of course, it's it's basically all the time when you're looking to your left, you're looking from the view that the Germans had on the ridge, and and the pillboxes are are great as well because they uh, have survived because they're incorporated into this uh, the New Zealand memorial, uh, and so it means that we have two of them that are. It's a shame we can't go inside them, but in fact, these are not ones that have uh, fire fire slits. They're not ones that you could actually fire from. These are are shelters where the men would fight beside them. So actually, I suppose going inside them, you don't gain anything because you can't see out from them. Uh, but they're, uh, yeah, they're great because uh, they're in good condition. They've been well looked after and uh, and we get a real feel of what it was like to be a German soldier uh, just on this ridge uh, during, during the fighting uh, for, for, uh, for to take the ridge when the New Zealanders were coming directly towards us. And hence, that's why the memorial is here because this is in the, the crux of where the heavy fighting took place to get past these uh, these these bunkers and in fact the position that we're in is known as Ulan Trench if that's a correct I've always worried about that name Ulan uh, it's a, a German cavalryman effectively a lancer um, and uh, so this was uh, known as Ulan Trench uh, where we are am I pronouncing that correctly Matt do you think I think you are that's, that's how I pronounce it as well my German is even worse <laughs> than my French so but, uh, that sounds like a good effort to me I'm not saying anything um, 
I'm glad you mentioned those because people who've travelled on tours with me with me would note that I'm a complete pillbox nerd. I really, I really get a, the, the pillboxes that are left over, the bunkers and these concrete fortifications are a really important, tangible reminder of the war because obviously they only built them in places where they needed protection, so therefore they're always in the yep. front line. And if you find one, you know there was fighting around it because otherwise they wouldn't have gone to the effort to build one in the first place. And the yep. two in the New Zealand Memorial Park there are two of my favourites because they, they're in a very important part of the line. It's a very important battle. We know that they were actively used. The defence wasn't great. The New Zealanders swept over them pretty quickly, but there was a lot of fighting that took place around them. And also the design with the steps up the back. I, I love that. Yeah. They, 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 they very neatly demonstrate what we always talk about with pillboxes, that most of the fighting didn't occur from within the pillbox, that they yeah. were shelters that, the, as you said before, the shelters the machine, gun, machine gunners would shelter in. Uh, and then wait till the artillery barrage had passed and then rush out of the pillbox and set themselves up. And in these ones, there's actually steps going up the back of the pillbox so that the machine gunners could climb up the back and fire from on top of the pillbox. So quite remarkable. There's a little platform so you see, you can imagine the Germans still sheltering behind the pillbox but firing across the top of it. And then even with little ammunition, little little uh, enclaves for ammunition built into the uh, the side of the pillbox so they could, uh, yeah, I think, they could store their ammunition I think they- there, so... I think they kept grenades in in there quite often. They'd have a little box with your grenades in there as well for your uh, defence when your enemy got close. But uh, but it's perfect. It's uh, it's great. I'll just quickly talk about pillboxes. Uh, and again, I think I think we could, and I can feel another podcast coming on on, on pillboxes. But uh, what's fascinating about about the pillboxes is that in Belgium they are protected. So the ones we see here, the farmer can't just come in and start ripping them out. All all of the pillboxes uh, connected with the First World War on the battlefields ha- have protection on them, you know, so they can't just knock them down. It doesn't mean you you can if you apply, but you cannot just go and take a, a sledgehammer to it or a JCB and, and take it down one day. And that's the exact opposite in France. None of them are protected in France. The only way they become protected is if they're in a memorial park. Um, and so, so it's, a, it's a very different attitude in Belgium. Uh, they they realise the importance, certainly for tourism, um, and the future of people will want to go and, and look at these things. And they do. You know, it's it's something that attracts people because it's tangible, isn't it? You can you can touch it, you can see it, you can feel it. it it's not just a story when you're looking out on a landscape and trying to imagine what it's like which we do quite a lot uh, on the battlefield, uh, battlefield tours. You have to because there's nothing left any longer. So it is nice when you've got something that's tangible and you can actually, uh, you can actually touch it. I think they're remarkable too, these pillboxes, because they were built by the Germans right in the front line. Uh, so yep. they, they would have had to build them at night uh, under yep. the watchful gaze of the New Zealanders opposite them. So quite extraordinary. But let's talk about the New Zealanders and the memorial here because like all the New Zealand memorials, it's pretty special. It is. I've I've always loved the New Zealand memorials. They're they're understated. They're, there's nothing really uh, spectacular about them. They're a, a pinnacle, a, a, a spire, um, and uh, the very simple uh, fern leaf on them, uh, and that famous phrase from the uttermost ends of the earth. And I, I remember the first time I read that, going back years and years and years, I just found that unbelievably moving. Uh, and considering that my house is really uh, where I live and, uh, and we're recording this, uh, I live on the uh, the New Zealand battlefields or the edge of the New Zealand battlefields of 1916 uh, and in fact our house is called Otago View uh, we commemorate the New Zealanders who, who, who fought and died close to, close to where, I, where I'm recording this so from the uttermost ends of the earth I've always found as uh, just uh, a simple phrase but uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah it, it tells a story um, 
It's uh, so we ha- we have uh, a quick description of the battle as well on the sides in English, Flemish, uh, and French, which basically say New Zealand division on the seventh of June captured this ridge and advanced uh, two thousand yards through Messines to their objectives on the eastern side. So that tells us that this is a successful battle. And as as I say, not going to go into the actual battle itself, but it was a successful action, uh, and it was it was very important, and in my view, one of the most successful actions of the of the Great War. Uh, but we're going to do a, a special podcast discussing the actual uh, fighting here. Just a um, shout out to the New Zealanders because what great work they did. I mean, we they get yeah. a little bit overlooked. The one division of New Zealanders that fought on the Western Front, um, obviously at Gallipoli, they did great work and um, great work on the Western Front as well. Just the the, the New Zealanders yeah. were rightly feared by the Germans. They were some ferocious fighters who did brilliant work, often alongside the Australians. And always as part of the British, and so um, yeah, so a, a, a huge contribution to the the war effort that is oft overlooked. It is, it is indeed, and, and thankfully not overlooked here, because we're going to be talking about other memorials and other things that are relevant as we walk into the town. So certainly, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a place where New Zealanders are, are remembered here at uh, at Messines. Um. So we're going to leave the site, we've had a look at the memorial, we're going to walk out onto the road and we're going to turn right, which will take us back into the into the town itself, which is on the outskirts uh, of the town. And here, something extraordinary happened in 2012. That, uh, I just uh, I lived in, uh, in Ypres for a year, um, in 2012, and we came up here to come and look at some archaeologists working because they were putting a pipeline in, and it's just literally opposite as you leave the, uh, the the memorial site, turn right to head to the town on your left-hand side. That's where the the pipe work went in, a big long pipe, and the archaeologists came to work here, and it was filmed, and uh, it'd been a, it, I hate this title; it's a terrible title for a very good documentary. World War One: Tunnels of Death, The Big Dig. Um, and that's what the docu- documentary went out. I think it was on British Channel 4. But it was really, really good and uh, and interesting because it was destructive archaeology. In other words, because this big pipeline was going through and then it was going back underground, they decided that what they do is scrape off layers and layers down to the trenches, down to the blockhouses, and then have a look at how they were built and then take off that layer and look at the next layer just fascinating it was absolutely fascinating to watch the archaeologists working there they found uh, sadly oh not sadly i think it's actually a good thing they found a new zealander who'd uh, who'd been buried there and obviously lost unfortunately they couldn't name him they were able to uh, identify his uh, his battalion but they couldn't name him uh, he was buried in the, the cemetery that we'll, we're going to visit during the uh, the walk as well um and so just brilliant they found a blockhouse a concrete blockhouse what they also found, and I found this really interesting, doors and things taken from the village because of the Germans, as they these are German trenches, as the Germans built these trenches, they used debris from the destroyed village. They took the doors off, and that, that's great for a bit of revetting and, and a bit of floorboarding. And so there was remnants of the village in the trenches that had been used. And because it was destructive archaeology, at the end, when they started filling in, there was all bits of timber about, and there was all bits of floorboarding from the trenches. And I have to say... As I went in there and they gathered up a good armful of uh, of uh, floorboards from the trenches and they're now in uh, in my barn. I have no idea what I did that for, but you just can't help me. Well, I can't help myself if there's uh, something. I'm just going to be ploughed back in again. And it's just nice to have some some of the uh, the duck boarding from an original German trench, say taken by the New Zealanders, so used by them as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got it. I've got it in my barn as well. So that was fascinating to go, actually go and see that uh, that archaeological work in 2012. I think that's brilliant, Pete. I would have done exactly the same thing if it was uh, if it was up to me. I would have done the same thing, and uh, 
my house would uh, be decorated with many of these uh, these items. Mine is. <laughs> Lots of them. Everywhere. <laughs> oh, so, I feel uh, another podcast coming on. <laughs> <laughs> things I found on the battlefield. Yeah, um, things in my house. Where are we heading to next, Pete? Okay, so uh, as we carry on down this street uh, and back onto the main road that runs uh, through the town itself, right in front of us we can see the, the church uh, itself. It is an extraordinary church. It's um, it's uh, St. Nicholas, the Church of St. Nicholas. It's got a, I don't know how to describe the tower really, a bulbous spire on it that's kind of got a bulge on, on top of, the, uh, of the, the, uh, the spire. So this strange bulge. So it's a very unusual church. It stands out for miles around. And it is an exact replica of what had been there before, built on exactly the same, the same site. Because, of course, it was utterly destroyed during the fighting. And I find that remarkable, really, that uh, especially remarkable when you, the, the area that I live in, uh, in here, the churches were rebuilt very much in a 1930s style. No attempt to reproduce the medieval churches that had been here before. They used brick and they used concrete and they're quite art deco. In fact, it's quite an interesting, uh, an interesting subject, are these art deco churches where I live. Well, in Belgium, in some areas they did that. They built them out of brick and they have an Art Deco look. Perhaps the most famous is in Zonnebeck, a very, very enormous Art Deco church built there. That's on the on the salient. Um, but here, it, they replicated exactly what had been here before. And apparently it's because the people below this, this ridge, the villages below, could look up and, and were reassured by this very attractive and unusual uh, spire you know, at a time when, when people uh, uh, were very religious. It was there and it was something that they could see from miles around. And so it was decided to put it back exactly as it had been. So that's what we're walking towards. Um, and before we actually go, we're going to just briefly go into the church for a reason that will become apparent. But we're just going to stop and have a look at a, a plaque that's outside of it, commemorating the New Zealander, Samuel Frickleton, VC, a, a plaque commemora commemorating him. He was a rifleman in the 3rd Battalion of the New Zealand Rifle Brigade. And very close to this spot where his plaque is, uh, he uh, earned uh, a Victoria Cross. Shall I read a little bit? I'll read a little bit about his um, about how he was awarded it, rather than trying to make it up. So, I must excuse. I'm just going to read this. Um, Frickleton's battalion was held upon the outskirts of Messine village by several machine guns firing from the other side of the artillery barrage. With his company suffering heavy casualties, Frickleton, himself slightly wounded, decided to take care of the guns himself. Calling his section to follow him, Frickleton advanced through the barrage to one of the machine gun posts. The smoke and noise of the shelling concealed his approach until the last moment. He lobbed in a grenade, rushed the posts, killed those inside. With his comrades providing covering fire, he then rushed a second machine gun post some 25 metres away, killing its crew and destroying the gun. Frickleton led his men through the village, clearing out Germans, lodged in the ruins and other prepared positions. Wounded a second time, he was carried from the battlefield and later evacuated to, uh, to England. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for his courage and leadership. Uh, by the destruction of these two guns, the citation read, he undoubtedly saved his own and other units from severe casualties. Um, what's when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even more outstanding, I suppose, from the point of view of the man himself, he was actually discharged from the military in Egypt. So when he enlisted, um, when they got to Egypt in 1915, um, after the uh, the fighting on the Gallipoli Peninsula, he, he didn't make it to the Gallipoli. He was a reinforcement, so went straight to Egypt, fell in Egypt, and it was decided that uh, he had bad lungs and that he should be discharged. But he re-enlisted in April of 1916 and came back out again. So uh, he didn't have to. And I think it just shows you know, people that felt that it was the right thing to do, that uh, they needed to uh, to stop German expansionism, and also for adventure, I suppose, for a lot of a lot of these young men. But he yeah, he made the effort to get himself fit again, and so he could rejoin, and uh, and off he came, out he came again. He also had uh, he was one of five brothers, uh, and they all enlisted as they all served. And sadly, one of them was killed, but uh, four of them returned home. The thing that I think is most interesting about that VC citation, Pete, is that, and I think this is the reason he received the Victoria Cross for attacking two machine gun posts, because plenty of people captured two machine gun posts and did not receive the VC. I think the key aspect of this that's easy to miss is he ran through the barrage. Now, at Messine, we're talking about a creeping barrage of artillery shells, which was a key part of the success of the battle, was how effective the artillery was. And the descriptions of the barrage at Messine is that it was an absolute wall of fire, an impenetrable wall of fire. So firstly, the Germans that were firing through the barrage, so the fact that the Germans were brave enough to have their heads up and firing through the exploding shells, but then that Frickleton ran through the barrage to attack the German positions is absolutely extraordinary. That in its own right should have gotten him killed. As it did, as many men were killed on many occasions, trying to uh, you know getting caught up in their own barrage. So that that's the extraordinary bit of, of this attack. I think the I think the barrage here was the heaviest barrage up until that point in the wall, wasn't it? If I remember rightly, I'm, I mean, it could even be for the whole of the wall, but it's one of the heaviest barrages, and it certainly was the heaviest barrage up until that point. Uh, this was the first successful. time. 
and the first time that we really saw that scientific barrage where yeah. the artillery yeah. worked extremely hard to produce a wall of shells that the Germans you know, couldn't fight through. So that, that's even more extraordinary. That, that, that's, I, I cannot believe that I'm reading about someone running through the barrage at Messines is, is yeah. absolutely incredible. So, yeah, yeah. obviously very well-deserved Victoria Cross. Um, and below us, a lot of people miss this. While we're standing and reading the, the panel that commemorates uh, this act, uh, below us we can see there's some bricks and some bit of concrete, and you just have to look down and realise that there's actually a, a map of New Zealand uh, there beneath you. So just uh, be aware of it when you're standing there reading uh, the panel. So now, this is almost beside the entrance to the church, so we're going to actually uh, go inside the church. Now, I'll just tell you a little private story here. I had the most fantastic opportunity a few years ago to actually go up uh, the, the spire to the top, and there's a walkway right near the top that you can walk around. Fantastic it was, but it was very nerve-wracking, I have to say, because it was something like House of Harry Potter. Uh, it was a wooden staircase inside which kind of zigzagged from side to side to 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 enable it to get up and you could just see it kind of crisscrossing in above you as you walked up and it and it was from the 1920s and it was not overly um safety conscious i suppose and, and what was even more worrying i had a, a group of uh, of school kids with me as well as well students so that was just marginally concerning and we got to the top and out onto this walk, walkway around that had just fantastic views, but it was just a wooden handrail as well, which was kind of marginally worrying as well. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, uh, well worth it. And I do believe that it's now been changed. You, you've now got an aluminium ladder inside. I think they've improved it, which is a shame, really, because it was an experience in its own right. But I think it's now been improved inside. Uh, and I don't know if you can actually ask for permission. It was just, it was... I think this was a case of who you know to, to get permission to go up there. But I've, uh, I've met a few of the people that have managed to, to get up to the top. And it's spectacular. If you, if you can, if you can figure out how to, uh, how to do it, it's certainly uh, worthwhile uh, going up on top of the spire. The views, you're on a ridge and the views then from the top of the, the spire on the ridge. Yep, ex- extraordinary. Um, but this is not the reason why a lot of people go into the church. And I just find this, I have to say, it's not something that I concentrate on because I'm not that interested and I think it's massively overcooked. But the crypt beneath the church is the original crypt. So from the original church, so you're going right the way back to, um, well, well, 1079 was when one of the, the people we're going to be discussing um uh, William the Conqueror's mother-in-law, Countess uh, Adela of Flanders, was buried there uh, in 1079. Um, so, and she, uh, her daughter, was Queen Matilde of of England. Uh, so, one of the early queens of England, because she she married William the Conqueror. Um, so we get the age of the crypt is still the original crypt. Well, that's not what people go down there for. People go down there because uh, Corporal Adolf Hitler was treated here uh, in 1914. Now, I think it's totally irrelevant to what's going on when we're talking about the First World War. Um, I think he'd been gassed. Uh, and we know that uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, own personal memoirs of the First World War were, are rather exaggerated. We know he was a runner. We know he was a runner in the rear areas, not a frontline runner. Yes, he was wounded. Uh, he was he was gassed at, at the very least. Um, but uh, yeah, so lots of people go down there into the crypt because they they want to go to a place where Adolf Hitler. Be. I think it's irrelevant personally. I think it's a great place to go because it's very interesting with uh, with William the Conqueror's mother-in-law being down there, uh, and it and it's uh, it's in an area where there's very little left of any great age, uh, pre-1920s, it's interesting to go and ha- have a look at it. But people do go in there just because of the, the Hitler connection. 
There's something else that I always, I really enjoy pointing this out. And there's a little, a very small kind of notice that you can miss so easily uh, about the fact that all of the light fittings, these bronze light fittings and a big chandelier in the middle of the of the church, were created by a German soldier, Otto Meyer, uh, in, uh, and presented to the, uh, the church in 1967. And he'd fought there during the war and had seen its destruction and how badly it had been damaged. And uh, in his later life, he felt he wanted to return something back to the town that he'd been involved in destroying, I suppose. And so he presented these uh, these light fittings he'd made himself. And I just think they're... I think they're miles better than the uh, than the Hitler story to go and see these and to have a look at them and to realise that somebody had this, I suppose, an element of guilt uh, and, and made the effort to come back and in 1967 presented them to the town. I think that's a great story. We should also note with the Hitler connection, Pete, that uh, Hitler did one of his um, rather crappy oh, he did. <laughs> artist yeah, he did, pieces yeah. of the Messine Church was he one did. of the things when he was in the area that he, uh, he painted. So uh, it, it's, it has fame beyond uh, just it's it's it's... Yeah, uh, just beyond its physical presence, it's uh, been immortalised yes, it in one of his, uh, yeah. <laughs> his second-rate yeah. artworks. Um, yeah. So yeah, there is a strong connection. I agree; it's a bit of a funny one. Um, it, it has to be mentioned; it's part of history. But yeah, it's it does. Bit, um, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. There were there were not... places on the on the Western Front where Hitler went, both yeah. in the First and, and Second World Wars, and there we go. And we're not going to talk about the Australian soldier that that had him in his sights at one time. I think that was. I'm not even sure. What Pete, tell me the story about the Australian soldier who had Hitler. No, in his I don't tell that story. I hate that story. It's a load of old rubbish. It's but not, anyway, none of it, it's not true. <laughs> it is. What, a, wait yeah. a minute. A, a story about the Australians almost winning the war. They're yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's a rare tale. <laughs> it uh, it's is. not true, is it? Um, no. Let's carry on walking. Okay, so we're just going to go outside again, the church. Well, back out, uh, yeah, I should say the church inside, well worth having a look around. It's a beautiful church uh, in, in, inside in its own right. So if you're interested in churches, even though it's a rebuilt one, in fact, from that point of view, it's interesting to have a look at, at uh, the engineering that was necessary to, to create this church in the form that it, uh, that it had been. I think the other thing that I should have said, and um, I, I missed it, is that the church before the war did not stand alone. Um, it was part of a of a, a convent and uh, and a girl's orphanage. It had also um, been um, uh, an abbey, uh, and so it was very much more part of a religious a, relig- a lot of religious buildings put together. And it's actually one of the reasons why the Germans fortified the the, the ridge at this point because they were always looking for cellars, and the cellars that were connected to the convent were quite extensive. Now the convent is completely gone; it was not it was not rebuilt. Um, it was also an orphanage, so it had lots of uses, and uh, and it, and it's no longer there. But it's just an interesting story that that it was massively fortified because they often talk about the command structure that was based in the cellar and the fact it was a medical post. And you're looking at the cellar under the church and thinking, how did this all fit in this small space? It's because this is just a fragment of what used to be here. There were an awful lot more under, underground uh, 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 chambers connected with the the old convent. And finally, while we're in the church, almost certainly, if you're there for more than 15 minutes, you're going to hear the uh, Carillon uh, uh, ring, the peal of bells. That's Carillon, isn't it? Is that how you pronounce it? Carillon, Carillon. Mm, no, I've said it, I'm not sure. Any ideas, Matt? Any I'm ideas? not jumping in. I'm, you've done well, Pete. Carry on. <laughs> 
Anyway, it's uh, the Peal of Bells uh, um, that uh, takes place. 1986, the tower was strengthened slightly. And I saw these bells when I went uh, uh, up uh, up to have a look at the, uh, the the walkway at the top. 59 bells, all paid for by various countries. All the Commonwealth countries uh, uh, paid for, for bell, a, a, a bell. And there's one that's, uh, that has cast into it Australia, etc., etc., on these bells. And they play tunes that are relative to the Great War or relative to the countries every 15 minutes. So it's, uh, yeah, it's nice to stand outside and lis- listen, carry along. I think it's a carry along. I think that's how we say it. Um, and, uh, yeah, the bells, the first bells, blessed by Pope John uh, Paul II. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, well worth hanging about to listen to the, the bells playing various tunes, and sometimes you can recognise the tunes, and sometimes you can't. I know from experience; I've heard quite a few of them. Um, so, where are we going to go now? Walk out of the church, and on the left-hand side, just as you're walking out through the door again, there's a, a panorama, one of those orientation tables that, that you, you we get there. Now, sadly, it's kind of the trees have grown up a little bit more than I think when it was first built. But it's a good view. It gives you a good view right the way out of uh, uh, Belgium to Warnerton. And Warnerton is on the on the border. Half of Warnerton is in France and half of it's in Belgium, uh, the canal in, in between. So it gives you views right the way out there. And that's over a lot of the battlefield. And it also points out several of those 19 mines. Now, we haven't mentioned them because we're not doing the battlefield, but 19 mines were blown beneath the German positions uh, at the start of the of the battle and from this view you can see several of the uh, locations of where these mines were detonated so where we're heading now well we're going to head the, uh, back onto the road again so leaving the church the church is behind us back onto the main road turning right which is going to take us into the square in the center of the town and then this is where we come across another commemoration of the New Zealand soldiers fighting here there's a, a new memorial it was put up on the uh, in the April of 2014 I missed it completely. I missed the uh, the actual, you'd, you'd think that you'd know about it, that it would have been well advertised. Literally, one week I went past and it wasn't there. The next week I went past and it, and it was there. And it's about a three-quarter size New Zealand soldier in his full kit with his uh, his lemon squeezer on his, uh, on his head. Um, and that was uh, unveiled on the 25th of April, as you would expect, and Anzac Day uh, in 2014. And so that's well worth having a look at. Not to everybody's taste. It's a, I find it's a little garish. It's, it's bright brass as opposed to a, a dull bronze. I'm never quite so sure of things being bright brass. But anyway, uh, a local artist, Jan... No, I'm not going to say his second name. Dusart. Let's try it. Dusart. Sculptured by Jan Dusart. Um, and uh, yes, well worth going to have a have a look at that as well. They do it well, don't they? But there's been a few New Zealand memorials that have popped up around the battlefields recently, redressing an absence yeah. of them. That, that, uh, correct. Think, unlike, yeah, we've talked about this before that in the 1990s, Australia went absolutely nuts and and built lots of really good memorials all over the battlefields. New Zealand was yeah. a little bit uh, slower to do that, um, but they've rectified that recently. And and as we said before, the New Zealand sites should be commemorated, and the new memorials. I like that they're new. They haven't tried to make them look like a memorial no, that was put up in 1925. Yeah. They're a modern new memorial. Um, they're obviously the modern people of New Zealand commemorating their fallen ancestors, and I think that's a really good thing. They're really neatly done. They're quite subtle, um, and they tell a good story. I, I, I really like them. There's, a, there's a, quite a few new ones that I've seen that, uh, that do a really good job. Yeah, we've got one in our village, actually. They've, they've literally put one up in the village. It's just a, a, a sheet of steel, almost, with a, a fern leaf cut into it. 
uh, but it's also the Fernleaf incorporates marching soldiers. So it's, it's it's very clever with just the basic information about uh, what went on in the area. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. They have been putting up more memorials. I think well, it was necessary for them to do that. So we're now going to walk uh, into the centre of the town, and on our left-hand side, as we walk into the, there's a green area in the middle, there's a bandstand, it's, it's quite beautiful, and I have to say, been massively renovated in the last 20 years as well. Uh, this town was cut off for almost, oh god, it seemed like almost five years, while they redid all the roads, they were putting new sewer pipes in and everything, and so it was very difficult to get to. But in doing that, they then re-cobbled, because I should say most of these roads are cobbled here. Um, so uh, beautiful cobbles. It's, it's, it's a great place to come and stop and have a coffee and go to one of the bars and have a local, a local beer. But what we're going to do is we're going to be standing in front of the town hall, effectively. Flags flying on it, town flags, uh, Flemish flags, Belgian flags. And um, what we have here is uh, up some steps... We have the tourist information office beneath the steps, absolutely crucial on tour, and I know where they all are. We have the toilets, and then to the left of that, we have a little visitor centre. But right in front of it, we have something that you'll either love or you'll hate, and it's a memorial to the Christmas truce of 1914. And this is, I have to say, cast fantastically. This is cast old school, bronze brig, life-size bronze statue, German soldier, picklehob, that uh, pointy helmet on his head, hand outstretched, shaking hands with a British Tommy who's leaning forward, got his soft cap on, and beneath the two is a football. And what it's commemorating is the Christmas truce of 1914, where supposedly there were uh, football games that took place. This one looks like it's the start of an international, apart from the fact that they're wearing uniforms rather than the normal jerseys. I'm not going to say any more about the about the. It's very controversial over the years. Some people uh, utterly believe in all of these big football games that are supposed to have taken place in various locations. I just say a straightforward thing. Who takes a football into the front line? I think that's... Just think about it. Who would take a football into the front line and who takes the pump to pump it up when you need it? You know, it, it's uh, it's an odd story. I think more likely, a few of them had a kickabout because they did come out of the trenches, they did shake hands, they swapped food, they chatted, they swapped photographs. We know all of that take, uh, took place. And I think in some areas, you can imagine cold soldiers kind of chatting to each other or trying to chat to each other they see a tin can some of them might have even wrapped some kind of rags around it a bit of string made it into a kind of a, a temporary ball and just kind of kicked it to each other backwards and forwards there was no international games anywhere up and down the western front so it's uh but but over the years it's got more and more exaggerated and and things put together and and then we get the the film Joyous Noel, where we also get an opera singer and a grand piano in the front line as well. So it's kind of kind of it's been massively exaggerated. But here we have an example of really, you have to say, it's just commemorating that uh, that camaraderie of the trenches that took place in 1914. Ignore the football, two chaps take shake, shaking hands. Uh, and it, it's okay, and, and it's good for children and students that come here and want to know a little bit about what went on. Uh, it gives a bit, it's a bit of uplifting in what can be a, a fairly miserable experience if you uh, if you're not really into into battles and warfare. So uh, yeah, so I don't object to it, but you just have to put it in its perspective, and, and it is extremely well sculptured. I have to say. It's an interesting one. I mean, the, Messine is the heart of the Christmas truce. This was where most of the reports came back about the Christmas truce in 1914 in this area, so it's a good focal point for it. Yes, I agree. The stories of the Christmas truce have been blown out of proportion. 
in a, in an odd way, they've been, they've been derailed a little bit because I think the story of the Christmas truce. I'm not trying to downplay it. I think the Christmas truce in the the reality of the Christmas truce is an incredible is story, and moving. it doesn't need embellishment. And this, particularly the football yeah. game, has derailed the story because I don't know why. For some people, the idea that that the soldiers simply met and chatted and exchanged gifts wasn't enough for them. They needed a football match and the whole thing. It's just it's been blown completely out of proportion and. Um, Look, let's not take it away from them. I mean, the one thing I will say about that with your description too, Pete, is anyone who's seen photos of no man's land during the First World War would note that it's a sea of shell craters and barbed wire and I'm not quite sure where they would have played this, yeah. this amazing football game. But um, let's not get bogged down on that. I, I think it's important that people connect with that humanity and there's a number of sites in this area. Uh, correct, yeah. Um, to do that. I mean, the UEFA Memorial out next to... plug um, Out next to... Um, um, Prowse Point Cemetery is just awful. Let's not talk about it. It's mm. almost as bad as the windmill at Poissier. Let's yeah, not talk uh, about that yeah, either. The, 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 so you know, we whole podcast about new terrible private memorials, but <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. But uh, look, I agree. It's 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 an, a lovely what that sculpture. It's a beautiful sculpture, and it captures the sentiment very well, if not the the historic fact very well. Yeah, so, indeed. I, and it's I, it's I a, as, as you say, it's a nice focal point in the town. It is. Uh, the visitor's centre, which is just behind it, literally automatic doors open by themselves. It's unmanned, uh, part of, the, I suppose, of the tourist office, which is uh, above it. Fantastic. It's just fantastic. You, you can go in there. Nobody's there. You can spend as long as you want inside it. And the rainy old dates, well, you know, you spend a bit longer than you wouldn't if it's not a rainy day or if the bars are closed. You spend a bit more time in there. But it's, uh, yeah, it's got all sorts of films that are constantly running on loops, so you can watch several films about the rebuilding of the town, stories about uh, about the fighting that took place, uh, shelves of souvenirs, things that have been found in the various uh, archaeological work and by farmers brought in. So, great. It's just a great little tiny visitor centre that's packed full of all sorts of stuff that just gives you a little bit more of the story of the town. So I love it. I always go in there. A lot of people just go straight past it, don't even notice it. Uh, but it's uh, well worth popping into the uh, the visitors centre. Um, I think it's described as an information point in some of the some of the literature. But it's uh, it's a bit more than that. I, I really like it. So well, it's very well done. Like in. everything in Messine, it's very very well done. It but is a, bit, a credit yeah. to the people of Messine and oh, it is. I agree. Further afield yeah, in Flanders because they, it is a everything in this town is really well done. They, they've done it very very yeah. well. Yeah. So then, if we're if we're at lunch, then we have an opportunity to go to the bars, and there are quite a few a few bars. Occasionally, you hit it when nothing's open, but normally, if you have a, a rummage around, then one of the bars will be open, and some of them do foods as well, so you can you can eat something there as well. But at the very least, you can get a coffee or a beer. Um, so where we're we heading now, well, we're going to carry on back onto the main road again, so leaving the square and the uh, and the town hall and the bandstand. Uh, oh, what I should say is, well, there's also the remnants of a field gun uh, in the in the middle of the uh, of the the square there as well. I've never been quite sure because it is literally the remnants is a bit of the barrel. I think it might be a four point five inch howitzer, but equally it may not be. It could be something German. I'm not sure. It doesn't say anything about it, but oh, have a look for it. There's uh, the remnants of a field gun there, just op- opposite the uh, the visitor centre. So back onto the main road, turn right, carry on along. We're heading in the direction of White Sheet if we were walking out of the town. And then we're going to get to a crossroads and we're going to turn left. And this is going to take us, uh, first of all, to uh, a cemetery, Messines Ridge, um, New Zealand Memorial and the cemetery that's uh, associated with it, Messines Ridge British Cemetery. But before we get there, we're going to go past something that's, again, associated with the Irish Peace Tower. It's called the Peace Village Hostel nowadays. 
Now, I've stayed in it. It's a hostel for student groups in the main. Um, so there's accommodation for the driver and the guides. And then there's lots of kind of bunk accommodation for students. It's a fantastic place to go to. I've really enjoyed it. You can have a bit of fun there. The, the, the food is, is fairly basic uh, in, the, in the morning, but really good fun. Great place if you're looking for a group of students and you just want somewhere to stay, which is interesting. You can do this walk that we're, we're, we're on at the moment uh, from there as well. Um, so I, I, I really like I really like uh, I really like it, um, and um, but it has a funny old story. It was originally built by uh, I suppose by Northern Irish as a as a place to bring students uh, out onto the Western Front to learn about the cooperation between uh, the two sides of the Troubles in Northern Ireland uh, and Ireland. It didn't really work particularly well, uh, and uh, in the end, it was uh, it was decided um, to hand it over to the Belgian government that they should run it, and they run it basically as a peace school. And so students come from all over Europe to uh, to stay there, not just from uh, Northern Ireland. They still do come from Northern Ireland, very little from the south of Ireland, uh, but mainly Northern Ireland. But they come from all over, uh, and it's uh, yeah, I think it's it's not quite doing what it was in originally intended to do to bring students from both sides of the divide but it still brings lots of lots of students and i've taken multiple australian uh, student groups there and british student groups so it's uh, yeah it's a, a good a good place to go to what you can do as well when you're there you can take them down and as we're going to do and walk down to the Messines ridge uh, new zealand memorial now this is a memorial to the missing what I should say as well, there is a, yet another memorial to the Christmas truce here. Just, I'll just quickly talk about it because I don't want to concentrate on this Christmas truce too much. But there's another uh, granite pillar here in the grounds of the Peace Village. Um, and it's just inscribed with a lull in the hate. Uh, and again, it was the British and German ambassadors in this case uh, attended its unveiling in 2014. It's made out of uh, granite, polished granite. It's just got a football on it. So again, reference to the football game. So it's just a, it is a bit of a student thing to concentrate on the uh, on the football game. But it's uh, yeah, it's I suppose it's there and tells tells a story or con- a continuance of the story of the Christmas truce. So we're going to walk past that and we're heading down now out of the village again to the edge of the ridge where we get these fantastic views again and it's on our left hand side and we're going to go and uh, have a look at the Messines Ridge New Zealand Memorial which commemorates the uh, the missing uh, and uh, I just think it's it's extraordinary 828 officers and men commemorated in a circular fashion cross a sacrifice above it um, and uh, uh, how to describe it's like you're in a circular trench and in the middle of that circular trench is this memorial with all the missing uh, soldiers names uh, officers and men on it and then above you is the cross of sacrifice i think it's stunning it's a very cleverly designed memorial charles holden uh, designed it uh, and uh, it's one of the seven memorials to the New Zealand missing because of, of course uh, we have talked about it before but you may not have listened to the the podcast New Zealand decided to do something different to Australia. Australia commemorates, uh, or Canada, Australia and Canada commemorate their missing in two locations. The missing of of Belgium um, on the Menin Gate, the missing of France for Canada um, at Vimy Ridge and for Australia at Villas Bretonneux. Um, So it's central uh, uh, commemoration points. New Zealand decided not to do that. I suppose it's a bit more like what the British did, really, is that we commemorate 
on each battlefield or, or area. And uh, that's what the New Zealanders decided to do to commemorate their missing on each battlefield. And so this commemorates the, the missing soldiers fighting on the Messines Ridge uh, or around, around the area around it. Um, so it's well done, very, isn't it, Pete? It's a nice oh, thing to fantastic. do that when you go yeah. to these battlefields and you know that the New Zealanders were there and then you see a New Zealand memorial. They're never very big. You know, this one's got less than a 1,000 men. I mean, that, that's a lot of men. But compared to the... 70 odd thousand on the Tietval Memorial or the, the, the 50 odd yeah. thousand on Men and Gate. It's, it's a small number, but it adds, a, it adds a lot of character to each site. You, I, I love what the New Zealanders have done. You go there, there's generally a memorial to New Zealand from the uttermost ends of the earth. They're all very similar to each other. And then you have this memorial to the missing. You've got it in Polygon Wood, you've got it at Passchendaele, you've got it here at Messine, uh, Longueval on the Somme, numerous other places. But it's, it's very, very well done. I, I really like it. It's, it reminds me a little bit of what, what happened at Gallipoli in the Anzac sector where you go to each of these central battle points and when you get there there's a cemetery and and you know and the, you can see the men that, that were killed in that area I think the New Zealanders have done it very very well yeah I, I think it's excellent and uh, I had to scribble down the name because uh, there's the seven uh, uh, memorials to the missing on the western front uh, six of which I know very well and the, the seventh uh, is a place as a place called Morpho Morf, ma, Marfo. Let's go Marfo. Uh, and I think I've only been once to it. It's right off the battlefield. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a place that uh, very few people would, would, would go to or right off the regular battlefield. Um, and I think I've only been to it once. The others I go to on a, on a regular uh, basis. Also, just to point out, all of this is taking place on a site where there was once a windmill. There was once a windmill here. And if you're on this site, you'd realise why. It is quite, well, a lot of these places. In fact, you could say that on the Western Front, where most of the memorials are, they're in locations that give you excellent views across the battlefield or the landscape, which means that they're also fairly windy. And so, yes, there was a windmill here. It had been built in 1445, so it was a very old windmill. And it was connected to the uh, to the um, the hospice in the town. So Moulin de Hospice, it was called, um, and not rebuilt, obvious, obviously. But it, there are some stones about that look very old, so you can see in the fields bits of it still, uh, still around about. So from that, as we walk through this, so we have a look at the Memorials of the Missing. It's also the entrance to the, actually the cemetery, Messines Ridge British Cemetery. And it's one of those cemeteries, this, that you can literally spend ages in here because you've got the views to look at. It's beautiful. It's got trees within it. Um, it's got this memorial to look at. It's one of those ones that you can spend a long, long time here. 1,536 burials or commemorations. So it's a fair-sized uh, cemetery, but sadly, like a lot of them in this area, 957 of those are actually uh, unidentified and that's about the, the ratio for this area an awful lot of the soldiers brought in here after the fighting it's this is a concentration cemetery and so with concentration cemeteries we have an, an awful uh, uh, number of unidentified now i came across something when i was compiling the the, the figures for this you always have to go to the most modern kind of uh, figures you can find because of course one of the issues we have here is that we are still finding bodies and where are they being buried well this is an open cemetery so the numbers bizarrely you wouldn't think they would but they are they're increasing all the time the other thing i noticed is that on one of the various sites you can go to look at the figures they'd counted the number of australians here and uh, they, they said 322 which i'd found elsewhere and then i thought well hang on a minute why are they now saying 204 
because I suddenly realised that 322 Australians included the unknown Australians. So the unknown Australians, the, the, it will say, uh, an unknown Australian soldier or a soldier known unto God, uh, and so it will it will tell you that he's, he's Australian, but we don't know his name is. Well, then which list do you put those under? Do you put them under the unidentified, or do you put them into the Australians? So... It's the first time I've ever noticed the, the difference between named, 322 named, uh, no, no, 322 Australians in total, and 204 of those are named. And so we've got the same figures, 115 uh, New Zealanders, of which 67 are named, uh, 56 South Africans, of which 10 are named. So I just found that interesting. I hadn't noticed before that you could do it like that, because... You can't do that by anything other than counting the, the the headstones. There's no way you can do that by looking at literally by looking at any records. They don't give you the split of unknown soldiers by nationality. You have to, generally speaking, physically go and look. That's an interesting little point, Pete. It's um, also quite shocking the numbers, isn't it? Just to, again, the, the thing we talk about all the time with the First World War: the yep. scale of death and the the number of men that were uh, were missing and. Um, and, and lie in these cemeteries under unknown headstones. Just always yeah. essential that we call into these cemeteries and and. Oh, they never ceased to. Yeah, never ceased to move me, Matt. You'd think that you know, we've been doing this for twenty years, uh, and and I live here. I live amongst them. I, I go and visit them all the time. But you just find yourself drifting away. Really. I can't describe it. You read an inscription and you want to know more about that man. What is that man doing here? Where did he come from? And you can't help it. I've got. I've got photographs and photographs on my phone of people that I need to look up to find out why why they were there because they they caught my interest and uh, in fact I, I took some today I was literally two visited two cemeteries today and I thought well, that's interesting I'll take a picture of him and I, I wonder why he's here and what happened to him and you know, there's some either something unusual or he's very young or he's very old or he's just very average you know you just you just think it's just interesting and something will catch your attention so i find them very moving and uh, and the visitor's book you can find extraordinary go and look at the visitor's book have a look at who visited the last time and of course very sad at the moment but unbelievably sad we look at the visitor's books and they've had you know last year you'll find two or three names people managed to get out uh, and, and visit and i can't wait until we open up the visitors books again and see pages and pages of interesting comments by people who are visiting which which we've not got at the moment so I, I, I look forward to this year when we get the people coming back and looking at the cemeteries again and making comments in the visitors books i agree pete well said what's the last stop in our tour pete Right, well, this is a little bit of a walk. I wasn't going to include this, and we've already mentioned it. It's the London, uh, the London Scottish Memorial, which is just outside of the of the town. So back to the crossroads, back into the centre of the town, to the crossroads. Turn left, heading out again on the the road to White Sheet, the next uh, the next uh, village on the, on the ridge, on the Messine Ridge. And on the right-hand side, just outside of the town, well, it's a little bit more than just outside of the town, is a, a memorial to the London uh, London Scottish. Now, London Scottish are a territorial. Uh, battalion based in in London, as you'd expect, and predominantly from people who are Scottish. I suppose the name tells you what what they are, really. Um, But part-time soldiers... But they were the very first territorial unit to go into action. So very, very uh, famous. 31st of October 1914. Um, Remember, it's regular soldiers with the territorials following them, uh, following them up, uh, being called up and and, uh, shipped across to France. This is the first unit that went into action. 
I always remember the story of them, and so it's just worth recounting. They had the old Longley Enfields. They hadn't got the modern SMLE, the modern uh, uh, rifle that we uh, generally see in photographs of the Great War or, or, or paintings of the Great War. This is the earlier, uh, the earlier weapon. And it hadn't been converted properly to take a pointed round. So a modern round of the First World War goes to a point. Um, the previous rounds are associated with, I suppose, the, the Boer War or, or uh, interwar period between the Boer War and the First World War, they had a round. They didn't go to a point. They were rounded at the at the end. And it meant that they fed into the uh, the rifle nice and smoothly when you were cocking, cocking the bolt and pushing it forward and taking the round into the into the weapon to fire. But these hadn't been altered to take a pointy round, and it jammed. And so they were able to fire once as they advanced, and then most of the soldiers uh, advancing couldn't then uh, reload because the, the rifle had jammed because the next bullet with a pointy round stuck into the uh, into the breech and jammed it. And so they went into action on that first day mainly using the bayonet because their rifles are jammed. Uh, are jammed. So uh, it's a rather horrific story, but but an interesting story about this first territorial unit going going into action with slightly outdated. Uh, weaponry that hadn't been there was a correction you could do to it to alter it it was quite easy to do but these had not been not been changed and um, they suffered 400 casualties uh, during the, uh, the the attack before they were eventually uh, withdrawn so a, a tough uh, a, a tough entry into the war for this uh, very first uh, territorial uh, battalion to see action and as i said uh, their memorial and uh, this is where they decided at the end of the war to place their memorial um, and it was unveiled by uh, King Albert uh, of the of the Belgians and uh, and Haig, who commanded the the forces uh, in 1923. Um, yeah, so well worth going to have a look at. It takes the form of a Celtic cross, if you hadn't described it, but it takes the form of a rather attractive Celtic cross. It's a great demonstration, Pete, of how static the lines actually were uh, for the first three oh, years yeah. of the war. That there was still three years later, they were still fighting on exactly the same spot. Whereas if you yeah. compare that to something like Normandy in World War Two, they were advancing kilometres and kilometres every day, and uh, yeah. you know that that entire campaign it, only took ten months. So <laughs> just extraordinary. I think it, all, it it also shows you, doesn't it, how well built the German defences would have been, because if you've not been moved off this ridge and you've been here since 1914, and eventually you will be moved off it in 1917, you know you had a long time to perfect your fields of fire, to perfect your your dugouts, to build the concrete blockhouses, and that's why it's 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 such an, an extraordinary battle in 1917, so well planned and so well organised. And as I say, we will do another podcast about the about the fighting, the actual physical fighting to take the ridge, because it was a, a very well planned and executed uh, battle to take the Messines Ridge. Well, Pete, it's, a, it's an extraordinary little corner of the battlefields, an area I love visiting, and it's been great to walk uh, just around the town and, and see these sites in depth because we often whiz through there seeing other parts of the battlefield without paying enough attention to what's going on in the town. So I, I've really enjoyed this, mate. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been wonderful to do it in your company, and I, I can't wait to do it again in person uh, in September when yep. we walk the battlefields together. No, I'm looking forward to uh, to getting back onto the Machine Ridge because it is uh, on a good day. The views are spectacular, and even on a misty day, that uh, you get so you get a good idea of what what's going on. So yeah, it's uh, highly highly recommend that you spend some time here if you're exploring the battlefields by yourself. Well, thanks, Pete. We'll talk to you next week. Yep, looking forward to it, Matt. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to follow us through social media where you can learn more about each episode we've just recorded on Facebook and on Twitter under the, the tag Battlewalks. You can find us there and more information about each episode. 
Also, if you would like to support the podcast, you can now buy us a coffee. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to contribute a small amount, which really helps keep the podcast going and bring you new episodes. So if you want to support us, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks. Thank you for listening to us. We'll see you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.